Welcome to another edition of UCBS on Times Live. I'm delighted to have for the next 10, 15 minutes, Michael Bowman, who is incredibly busy as the National Chairperson of Action SA. I also want to thank him for coming on for an unscripted conversation about a couple of hot button issues in the body politic at the moment. And I always appreciate that as a broadcaster and journalist, because it is fair for an interviewee to say, what are we going to talk about? But Michael, um, being the person that he is, is happy to have an extemporaneous conversation about politics. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Michael, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. No, always a pleasure. I enjoy your podcast. I must say, I listened to the one yesterday. Uh, and always enjoy listening to them very much. No, I appreciate that. That said, there are three or four areas I'm going to cover within the next 10, 15 minutes. I want to talk a little bit about what is going on in Tswane at the moment. There are particularities and then some generalities in relation to secrecy that we need to talk about. Then I want to talk a little bit about the lie detectors. Um, and that, again, is linked to Tswane, but it's got to do, again, with some generalities around party discipline. And then about broader issues on the national stage, the relationship or not, the Hoodby relationship between yourself, the ANC and other coalition partners um, or potential coalition partners. And I will keep for last the issue that perhaps some people would have thought would be the first, and that is the exit of Bongani Baloy, your now former colleague. So let's start with Tswane. The most immediate news you've just tweeted, actually, so let's start right there. The DA, which is a separate matter, tried to find some mechanism to know how each of their councillors would vote for a new speaker, which would have been an action as a speaker as part of the coalition of which both parties are a part of. And, of course, the IEC decided that all of their ballots are to be declared spoiled. That can be debated elsewhere for whether that was the right decision or not. But the fear was that some councillor of one of the coalition partners may not be disciplined enough. And it seems from a tweet that you've just tweeted that it was one of your own. Well, actually, I mean, let's go back a step. I mean, for what it's worth, I do agree with the IEC's assessment. Section 47 and 61 of the Electoral Act and Municipal Electoral Act are explicit in that regard. And I think we need to call it for what it was, an error of judgment. Um, and, you know, being coalition partners doesn't mean you excuse one another in those scenarios, and I wouldn't expect them to excuse us. Uh, you know, in as much as one of our own, it related to the meeting on the 28th of February. Uh, we, through our investigations, which have involved polygraph tests, as you say, but I think important to say not only polygraph tests, because we are aware of the limitations that polygraph tests impose, look to investigate this issue precisely because 
you have the scenario where, yes, there's absolutely the protected right of a secret ballot. And we must be clear about that as a vote of conscience, intended rightly as that. But there's also parts of the same act that prohibit the buying and selling of votes uh, in municipal councils. So we do need to understand what transpired on the 28th of February and very worrying that already this has emerged where a councillor, and you'll hear it first here with Eusebius, uh, was offered the equivalent of their MMC salary for the remainder of the term of office, and we calculate to be over 2 million rand if they had voted for Macquarella. We're very pleased to say that our investigations revealed they were offered it, but they did not accept it. And I think also this is where the value of investigating comes to ensure that you don't have people incorrectly caught up in the net of suspicion as well. Okay, so let's before we talk about the normative or the principled issues, just for the record, the offer was made, but that does not, or does it in your mind? What what is the facts uncovered? You haven't found one of your own ethically unwanted, you know, sort of wanting, have you? Rather, have they were they the ones who led you to the revelation of the ANC side making this unethical gambit? Correct. They they came forward and explained this is what had happened. They indicated that they had been offered but did not receive. Uh, And I'm very pleased to say that the polygraph test found exactly that, uh, which allow us to confirm that version of events and know we're working with an individual who wasn't ethically compromised in that regard. And that individual will stand alongside myself and the new Gauteng Provincial Chairperson tomorrow to lay criminal charges of bribery against the the, the councillor concerned. Mm. Let's speak then, as I alluded to in my very loose structure, Michael, to the principle of secrecy. I do think my from you know my initial talking to electoral experts is also that despite whatever advice the the DA got, you know you can find a lawyer to give you the advice you want. Um, but electoral experts I spoke to also thought that the judgment call of the IEC officials was was correct, and I, I think legal certainty would be useful. But I don't want to go into into detail around that. But there is a more general issue that I think is kind of interesting. Yes, I vote for someone to represent my ward, and I want them to be responsive to me and not to you and not to party headquarters. And yet at the same time, that is a simplistic view of the dynamics of how caucus politics work at all levels of government and the idea of caucus discipline can't be outside of our analysis. Can you explain to the public how you see that tension, if it is a tension for you, between, on the one hand, the legitimate right and interest of a party to have a party view, including on particular votes, and on the other hand, the recognition that, in a strict legal sense, each councillor is one individual whose individual autonomy matters, because if that weren't the case, then you may as well have only one rep voting on behalf of the entire caucus. Yeah, no, exactly. So, and we've seen it play out and you've got to be wary of being a political party that stood on the rooftops uh, and demanded a secret ballot with Jacob Zuma. Uh, and then when the shoe is on the other foot, so to speak, there's a different standard being applied. And I think the difference comes in with the Concord ruling in UDM versus Speaker of the National Assembly, where it had to be the judgment of the speaker as to whether an environment of fear and intimidation prevailed. Whereas in local government, you appear to have this blanket, unchecked right to a secret ballot. And I think that's part of the concern without regard for what the environment is. Because while the ability to vote your conscience is an important aspect, we all know the vote-buying element in South Africa is real. 
each councillor walks into council with about four to 6,000 residents' votes in their pockets. That's what puts them there. Uh, and at the end of the day, if they are trading that uh, like stocks in a stock exchange, that is a violation of what was promised to the residents at that time. I think from our point of view, the best answer to the question, I think, you know, lies in what Action SA itself does in these scenarios. So we have a provision in our constitution, of course, to which all members, including councillors, agree to abide by, where votes, where, where councillors who do not agree with the corpus decision have the right to make an application for a vote of conscience, knowing that that is a legally protected activity. In other words, if you apply and I don't grant it, you are legally entitled to challenge my decision. And in this instance, you will win because a vote of conscience is a protected legal activity when it comes to the election of a mayor or a speaker. But what we have got going on in this environment is people who come to caucus, unanimous decisions are made that we will support candidate A. No objection is raised about candidate A. The person then goes to council and they, they don't make an application for a vote of conscience. And then they go to council and they vote for candidate B. And I think that is the concern that we need to balance here between the right to a secret ballot and the selling and buying of votes. I think that's legitimate. And because I want to go through a couple of themes in a short space of time, I only want us to have one more bite on this issue. Uh, I think what you've said is coherent. And I think there's political cowardice and even ethical cowardice on the part of the person who doesn't raise their hand in caucus when you have that discussion prior to the vote and then wants to behave differently in a secret vote. But here's the problem, though. One can play example table tennis. And if you make the right set of facts sneak into your example, fictitious or real example, then you've got difficulties in all sorts of permutations that heal different general outcomes. For example, let's say my particular ward really hates the action as a candidate for whatever reason, and I call a, a little meeting of the streets where I am the ward rep. It's really hard for me to apply for a vote of conscience, even if I appeal to you by saying, but these are the emails that I've got from everyone in my ward. Because the reality is that I might win the legal battle, but you and I both know that that is how political trust begins to break down because I might be legally on the correct side of the issue um, in terms of that entitlement to a vote of conscience, but it may not be politically prudent. And so if you're going to be talking about protecting me from nefarious consequences with political leadership that doesn't like someone who breaks rank, even if they appeal to what members of their ward want, the residents want, then a secret ballot at local level suddenly takes on the color of, of, of one at a national level where you also want an ANC backbencher to not have to fear political reprisal, even if they have a legal entitlement to conscience. What do you say to that quickly? No, I completely agree. I think we must create a protected space for a legitimate vote of conscience. That's why we put it into our constitution. Ultimately, any councillor who feels that we are violating our own constitution and dealing with them will have recourse available within Action SA and externally. And that's precisely why we put it in our constitution in the first place. And we think that is a responsible manner of trying to balance what is going on. And perhaps what happened earlier this week might not have been. Third last question, Michael, for today. The lie detector, you've preempted this by saying the lie detector tests were not seen as a decisive way of trying to deal with the question of what it is that people did and how honest they've been. Because I thought to myself, I don't need to pick up a phone and speak to my lawyer friends to recall why 
lie detectors are no longer admissible mechanisms in law, even in South Africa. It is in other jurisdictions. And there's a fairly intuitive reason that the lie detector tells you what is going on in me physiologically as you ask me questions. But if there's no foolproof link between the words coming out of my mouth in terms of what I pretend that I had done or said or thought and what is happening to me bodily while this thing is being administered. But I wonder whether there isn't a bigger cultural issue here. I look at responses on social media on my Facebook page when I put up clips of the council leader of the DA and the slash spokesperson describing how they had tried to vote with a numbering system. And people who are anti-ANC, who are middle class, who are hutful with the government of the day, all respond in the way in which you wouldn't want to as opposition waiting to eat into the ANC's vote base, which is to say, they go, oh my God, how can the DA be this silly? And I wonder whether if I had to ask people on social media the same question about your mechanism, whether they would also say, I can't believe that these guys want us to vote for them as an alternative. And yet it is an example of them not even being able to trust that the people that they've picked to be part of their caucus are people with integrity. Because if people have integrity, then you don't need to smoke them out. Yeah, look, without question. And I mean, I think that is a concern. It's not a good look for political parties, and we need to be quite clear about that. I think just by way of an interesting legal point, because I know your legal proficiency is, is through the charts in this regard, is that our courts, from a labor court point of view, have said that polygraph tests are admissible when they're accompanied by corroborating evidence and expert testimony mm. of the administrators of the polygraph test. From our point of view, okay. we don't see it as a labor court issue for one. But two, I think more importantly, we see it as an investigative tool. In other words, to shortlist where areas of concern might be for further investigation. And disciplinary actions that may follow an action essay would only follow on the basis of further investigations that are not solely reliant on the polygraph test. Uh, and I think that's an important differentiation. I think more broadly, I think firstly, it's not always easy to know what is in people's hearts when you make them a candidate. Yes. I think candidates in many ways present themselves in a favorable manner. And there are times where people come forward and they say A, and I'm afraid they do B. And sometimes political parties can only be measured by how they respond when they do B. And in that regard, in response most directly to your question, the reality of people who feel that this is not the look of a political party they want as an alternative to the ANC, I would only venture that when we're talking about the buying and trading of votes on behalf of the ANC, the idea that a political party would take that very seriously to ensure that a campaign to unseat the ANC is not betrayed to put the ANC back in office becomes a fairly important kind of standpoint for an organization. Yeah, fair enough. The last two questions I'm going to fuse as one discussion point because I think they do relate, you know, the question of what your posture is as we are now. You, you've spent a lot of time in the media lucidly outlining at the beginning of the post-local elections period the forays into studying what is happening in Europe, how best one might attempt to put together functioning coalitions. And then, of course, we simply had to go through our own experience so that we can have our own realities to be the basis of an iterative process of sharpening how they play out here, which might be different to Scandinavian countries or Germany, whatever the case might be. And at the same time, there is... Tongani Beloy that was brought in as a talented, as you said, on the SABC interview yesterday, excellent, talented young black South African, great credentials, Midval, 
and very useful in terms of both skill set and optics, which matter both in politics, to have in the party. Now, if he is to be believed, including his later salvo in relation to you, you are the one on his version that thought it quite exciting to sit next to Panyazale Sufi and to contemplate the possibility of being in coalition with the ANC, that it's not a fait accompli, you might decide not to in the end, but that you at least were open to the idea and that Herman never was. Is the sequence in which that conversation happened on Bongani Beloy's version accurate? No, and I think let me let me say from the beginning, Eusebius, that a number of the remarks made by Bongani uh, we don't agree with from an accuracy point of view. And I must say the representations of the individual in that press conference demonstrate why you know, Herman Michel would believe he'd make an excellent national spokesperson. He's credible, he's compelling, he's coherent. <laughs> from all respects, I think someone you would want to play that kind of role uh, for what it may be worth. But as it relates to the very specific question, you know, there's no question that the party sanctioned conversations with all political parties. It took place at a time in October last year where we had just lost the city of Johannesburg because of what we had deemed to be irresponsible decision-making on the part of the DA. We were in an environment where we were now saying, how do we relate to this new environment where we're no longer in government and in coalition? And the answer of the Senate was that we need to engage all political parties and all political parties being all political parties. An offer was put through from Panyazal Sufi that saw Action SA taking up the mantle in Chwane uh, with their support and Bongani specifically being the mayor uh, for us supporting the ANC in Johannesburg and the EFF in Ikurlen. And there's no question, you see, because when you're a new political party and you're looking at a platform where you can demonstrate your track record, there's elements of the idea that become very rapidly appealing. The challenge, however, is the cost that must be paid. And that is the strings attached to that kind of deal. Ultimately, those strings we know means that if you do the right things and investigate wrongdoing in China in the wrong places, that, that won't bode well. And you're going to have to look the other way when wrongdoing takes place in Johannesburg or Ikurleni. Otherwise, there'll be consequences for you in Chwane, a kind of mutually assured destruction approach. And from our point of view, that cost was way too high. That cost came through by way of a public poll, which 30,000 South Africans participated and said, we need an alternative, not a coalition partner to the ANC. And ultimately, when Herman Mashaba took the decision to kill that idea, uh, along with the rest of our Senate, I think it was a situation which Bongani did not accept, and it was the start of acrimony in the party between Bongani and the leadership. I hear you. I, I want to stay with this as our final issue, of course. Um, for my listeners who are the uber-political nerds, almost like an extra two, three minutes on this. The minutiae for me is kind of interesting. Everything that you've said makes sense and your version is coherent. Um, out of interest, did you specifically as Michael think that a two-nardering from the ANC is inherently a non-starter? Or did you go to Herman's house thinking that it's worth discussing it with the leader of the party and Bongani was simply a passenger going with you? Because that's his version. Yeah, look, I think that version is, again, you know, very, very um, beneficial to Bongani. Uh, I think Bongani being the individual we all know him to be, he's not a passenger in anything. He's a active individual who provides leadership to situations. And I find that alone a, a contradiction in, in what we saw yesterday. Uh, but ultimately, yes, I mean, we went to engage the president of the party to convey that this line of communication had been opened up to us. 
And because the party had said we must explore these things, there was an idea that we must explore all of these discussions. I think from my point of view, I saw the potential upsides, but I don't think there was ever a loss of sight or vision in terms of how those strings attached would potentially always exceed the the benefits. Uh, Because ultimately, the idea that you would be allowed to govern freely and do all the right things and that there wouldn't be strings attached, it's just not realistic when you know the parties involved. Pongani thought that for him, which is different to what you said to the SABC yesterday, where things started going awry. Firstly, he said to the media, and you're right, that's why I tweeted and said he's coming across in a compelling manner on his version. But of course, you can only make a judgment call when you speak to someone else like you are doing now, equally compelling. And he basically said, I don't know, go ask Mr. Mashaba. He told me there's an irretrievable breakdown of trust, and I was never told why. I'm interested in two points from you. As Bongani was making his way to come to that meeting where you were present, did Herman tell you, the basis of the trust that is now irretrievably broken down? And secondly, what do you make of Bongani saying that his guess of where things went awry, because he doesn't know apparently, his guess is that he was such a good little mini in ANC speak, and this is my language, SG in Gauteng building structures from the bottom up, that the boss didn't like the idea of the amount of airplay he's getting, the region he's getting, the bottom-up democracy, and that's what really irked the old man. Yeah, look, I think from our point of view, where that argument loses credibility is in the notion that all of the things he was describing as the kind of sole champion of the party, you know, are actually things that were being driven by the Senate. So the Senate had taken a resolution that we need to define constitutionally decision-making powers delegated to the provinces and regions so that we can go and do those things. And make no mistake, he was an active voice in that conversation and a valued voice because Gauteng will always be further along on the developmental journey for Action SA because it is the epicenter of our origins. And I think from that point of view, you know, the party had resolved that that's what we were doing and engagements had started in nine provinces so we could flesh out exactly what those things were. I mean, the South African dream is a project that a whole bunch of people worked on, all for the purpose that we need to be more than anti-ANC and and have an actual vision that is presented to the South African people. And that was claimed to be his own. Uh, along with things like the Political Academy, which we resolved in February 2022, would be necessary to acclimate new members into the organizational culture and leave their baggage at the door, whether that baggage was blue, yellow, or red. So, you know, the thing I always say in the scenario is that, you know, Bongani in that process revealed himself to be a bit of an individual in playing a team sport. Because in a political party, you can't solely take credit for what's good and then push away what's bad. It doesn't work that way. It's a leadership team involved. And Bongani was an important part of that leadership team. I take, I don't take that away from him for one moment, and all credit is given in that particular regard. But I do want to say this, though, because okay. it's an important distinction. This idea that Bongani was a critical voice that was annoying the old man, so to speak, is contradicted by the... Uh- yeah, he even went so far, sorry to interrupt, Michael, to drive a wedge between you and the old man by suggesting, let me make it clear to you here at the presser, that it's Herman who had beef with me, not the national leadership. Michael and I are cool with each other politically. Well, I'm not sure I would agree. I think I worked quite hard with Bongani to see if we could turn things around over time, which is often the role of the national chairperson to try and see if we can mend these things. And clearly, by the events Mm -hmm. of the last two days, I was not successful. But what I would say, Eusebius, at the end of the day, 
if the argument is that we took someone who was, you know, a critic of the party and he needed to be silenced and we needed to take away a power base and all those things, it would be very odd to put that person in the position of national spokesperson and give them the megaphone of the second most public profile in in, in sure. the party. And as an important point, Eusebius, and I said yeah. this as well yesterday, and I believe it to be true, Bongani's track right, yeah. record in government is excellent. There's no question about it. But we must be clear, Midval is a very far-flung, small municipality in South Africa. And if we're going to have a successful challenger to a ca- candidate as strong as Panyaza Lasufi, it has to be a household name. And the idea of a national spokesperson had that kind of thinking in mind. It wasn't arbitrary. I, I totally agree with you. And no diss to him, just as a parenthetical comment, because I know Bongani will, <laughs> will listen to this. And I'm not smoking yard for an interview, Bongani. But, you know, Midval is great, but it's a little bit like me telling, wanting to tell someone into perpetuity. I was deputy head prefect at Graham College. At some point, you no longer reference your high school biography. You've got to get on with other roles as well and, and reference more recent and bigger things that you've also achieved. I should also say to my listeners, if you wonder why I've got an unusual, slightly angsty tone and pace in this chat with Michael, which is fortunately... um not really at the expense of the content because he speaks efficiently in terms of language. It's because of bloody ESCOM that will cut us off in under 10 minutes. So here's the last question for today. It's a weird kind of backhanded compliment in the in the worst case scenario, isn't it? Stepping back from the minutiae, that action as a, as a small newcomer can't be ignored. I mean, you are part of the national conversation in a way that's pretty important, and that will be true also after the national elections as well. Taking a deep breath in the final minute, reflect for me on what is going on in the party as you're beginning to think strategically away from the metro, although that is ongoing and important in, in you know in the short term, as you begin to think about lessons learned after local elections that you can use as a basis for strategizing coalition conversations come 2024. Look, absolutely. And I think local government coalitions have not exactly been an advert for how these things should play out. It's been a bit of a political horror genre. And we need to turn that around. Well, the way we see 2024 is really that it's a referendum on change. Political parties that want to align with the ANC must do so publicly in advance of 2024 so that voters know those political parties represent a continuation of the status quo. You can define the status quo based on how you prefer it, but I think that is a fair, rational statement to make. On the other side, political parties that align and say, we are willing to come together, we are willing to adopt a set of principles, those principles must begin with the idea that we will work to remove the ANC so that there's no betrayal in that regard, but it can't stop there. There's got to be the enunciation of joint policy solutions in certain key areas, because while there are big differences between political parties that will coalesce, those political parties must allow to have their unique isms so that they can speak to the constituencies that they appeal to and bring those people to the coalition. But you can't have a different idea on how we solve the energy crisis. You can't have a different idea on how we fix the economy, crime and education by way of example. And I think those are things where if South Africans could see political parties sitting down and saying, we will work together for the following solution, I think it would start to engender confidence that's been fundamentally missing arising from the local government coalition space, and and understandably so. Mm. 
Michael, thank you as always for your consummate professionalism. I always enjoy engaging you and all the best for the rest of the news day. Thank you very much, Eusebius. Okay, so that was the main conversation between myself and Michael Bowman, who is the national chair of Action SA. This is a two, three minute postscript to the main conversation following a couple of hours of me and my team just thinking through some of the different points that come out of that conversation. And in particular, the first claim about an alleged bribe attempt that was experienced by an Action SA counsellor, we approached, I did so specifically as Eusebius, uh, Michael Bowman, to understand the nature of the evidence. And I have had a sighting of what it is that will be deposed to by way of an affidavit that lays out the experiences of the Action SA counsellor and of course that is with a commissioner of oaths having put their stamp on there which means that from a legal point of view this person is confessing to a narrative that they deem to be true and truthfully recalled in the affidavit. What was curious to me, however, is that strictly speaking, the alleged criminal that attempted the bribery was not an ANC counsellor. And that made sense to me because I was bothered by a tweet in which Mr. Bowman had used the wording ANC-linked counsellor. And I know that he's a very precise language user. And if it was an ANC counselor, he, he would have said ANC counselor, full stop. Why would you say an ANC counselor is an ANC linked counselor? And it turns out that this counselor is not a member of the ANC, but loosely connected. Mr. Bowman tells me when I then engage him further on the matter to the ANC coalition in Chwane. But I want to make it very clear from the point of view of this podcast, Eusebius on Times Live, that what I had seen and what will be the basis of a criminal complaint in the next day or so is not in relation to the ANC. That it is a further separate factual allegation being made that would have to be substantiated, that there is more than just proximity, but some sort of conspiracy between the person that is cited in the affidavit and the African National Congress. And so it's very important to make that clear. And of course, once the actual complaint is laid, if the person mentioned, whom we haven't mentioned in the podcast, would like an opportunity to come onto Eusebius on Times Live, we would dearly like to give them that space to respond to the claim. And similarly, although the ANC is not mentioned, we will give the ANC an opportunity that they are welcome to take up to respond certainly to the tweet and what they will hear on the podcast. This allusion to ANC involvement in this alleged bribe, even though the ANC's name doesn't actually appear on the affidavit, which I think is deeply problematic for Mr. Bowman. And 
he agrees that in strict legal terms, the complaint is not going to finger the A and C, but he then does raise the question on what basis are you trying to malign the ANC and that doesn't bode well for the integrity of the general charge. So this additional information is crucial in terms of committing ourselves to a proper fact-based interpretation, analyses and judgment call as a listen of this podcast to what it is that you've just heard. How do you see it? You decide.